0: From the Center for the Study and Teaching of Writing at The Ohio State University, this is Writer's Talk. I'm Doug Dangler. Today, science fiction author Gareth Hanrahan tells OSU student Craig Massacar about the joys and challenges of writing about Middle Earth in his book, Tolkien's World, A Guide to the Peoples and Places of Middle-Earth. And then, Lynworth Detweiler from Cincinnati's own Over the Rhine stops by to discuss their December 14th concert in Columbus. So, stay tuned.
1: I'm I am joined by... Gareth Hanrahan. Uh, Gareth Hanrahan is the author of several books and a long serving staff writer for Mongoose Publishing. He's also freelance for companies such as Hogshead Publishing, Atlas Games, White Wolf, Green Ronin, Fantasy Flight Games, and probably others that he can't remember right now. Uh, He wrote the new edition of Traveler, the second edition of Conan and Babylon 5, as well as dozens of other supplements, source books, and scenarios. He started off writing scenarios for Irish gaming cons and still this. Gareth, would you like to start off with a quick introduction about yourself, aside from what I just said? Aside from the lar- largely accurate introduction there. Uh, no,
2: I'm a writer and game designer based in Ireland. Uh, I've been working as a freelance writer for the last 10 years, I think. Okay. Ever since discovering the computers were very, very boring.
1: <laughs> so for me, this was a very enlightening book, since I did not, surprisingly, I did not grow up... With the selection of books that I currently have, so I never had a chance to read either the Hobbit or the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Um, obviously, I saw the wonderful Peter Jackson movies, but everything in the Hobbit was still completely uncharted territory for me. Um, the book gave me a good this the book that you wrote um, gave me a good basis for the, some of the events in the Hobbit. But I still feel like I haven't been spoiled for the the upcoming Peter Jackson Hobbit movie trilogy. Um, how did you walk this like line of Giving background information about important places and items, uh, while not completely spoiling the story for the reader. Well, the
2: fantastic thing about Tolkien's work in general was, is his whole idea of sub-creation. Tolkien readers really didn't just write a story. He would create a whole world and then put the story in it. When he started writing um, certainly his older stuff, like Silmarillion, his real interest was the languages, and he created the, the world to give context of the languages and then created the stories to sort of make the <laughs> make the world a living place. So for pretty everything that happens in The Hobbit, or Order of the Rings, or any Tolkien book, there's a whole swathe of background information that isn't directly relevant to the story, but is still there and exists and it's still fascinating. So for example, with um, Bilbo's sword sting, there's a whole history of that sword in Tolkien's works. Huh, okay. Um, so it's very easy to like you know, to talk about Sting for a whole page without
1: um, spoiling any of the events of the novel where Sting is used as a weapon. I see. So it's more like the there's an environment built and the a story is sort of inserted into it as to uh, doing it the other way.
2: Exactly. Tolkien was very much so sort of the, f- the father of world building in a lot of ways.
1: Okay. Interesting. All right. Um, so speaking of Middle Earth, um, the Middle Earth universe is part of one of the most probably respected and inspirational franchises around. And you've got, I mean, board games, video games, movies uh, that have expanded upon, adapted this material. There's even like a Lord of the Rings, Lego Lord of the Rings uh, video game that recently came out. Um, Did you feel intimidated or nervous when approaching this universe, as I assume anyone else would?
2: Well, I've, my mother introduced me to Tolkien at the age of eight. Um, So I've been sort of like immersed in this for many, many years which makes it far more terrifying because it, it, it you respect it so much and I know what it should feel like. So you're trying to either summarize it or create new material in it. You're very, it's, it's sort of like you walk around a china shop. You're like Everything is absolutely beautiful. You're right. afraid just to, you to very, very, very carefully, delicately
1: uh, <clears throat> add material to it. So, yeah, it's terrifying and intimidating, <laughs> I, I would feel the same, um, especially as someone who wants to be a fiction writer. Adapting fiction seems like, well, I have to respect this, but I still have to, I still have to make it my own. So yeah. I, I sort of understand where you're coming kind
2: of from. Yeah, you, don't, you don't want to sort of like, you know, regurgitate word for word, but at the same time, you don't want to warp it or <clears throat> add your own extraneous material to it. Right, right. It's like framing a picture or something. You have to like you. Your frame has to complement it, but not obscure it.
1: Yeah, that put in a very well way. Well, speaking of the expanded universe, have you experienced any of these board games, video games, movies? Have you written or uh, read any fan fiction?
2: Um, I've done quite a lot of work for a role playing game at uh, One Ring, um, which is based in Tolkien's universe. Okay, uh, where the adventures and source material for that. And again, there you're sort of like you know, trying to skirt around the actual story. Because in like, games and so forth, you want to give the players things to do that don't overlap with the events of the novels, but at the same time are reminiscent of the events of the novels and give the players the feel that they're in the same universe.
1: Interesting. Um, all right. Well, You also mentioned that the uh, you were first experienced to uh, Tolkien's work when you were eight so was writing this book particularly nostalgic did it remind you of a simpler or maybe even magical time um there are those who'd argue they've never grown up so um i've been involved in like the
2: fantasy genre and fantasy fiction pretty much constantly since then um so it wasn't nostalgic isn't the, isn't the word but uh it was certainly a very great honor and it was sort of something we been sort of building up to for a long time
0: You're listening to Writer's Talk from the Center for the Study and Teaching of Writing at The Ohio State University with my guest, Gareth Ryder-Hanrahan, author of the new book, Tolkien's World, A Guide to the Peoples and Places of Middle-Earth. More information about the book is available at www.writerstalk.org. And now, back to our discussion.
1: The book is illustrated wonderfully by uh, Peter McKinstry. Uh, I think that's his name. Um, it's also accompanied by lots of pictures of the movie props um, for the key items, like Sting. they like
2: actually not, not the movie props. Really? really? Okay. No, no. They're either original illustrations or images got from elsewhere. It's not directly connected to the movies.
1: Okay, interesting.
2: Because, one thing, I mean, the movies have their own take on uh, Talking's material, and for the most part, um, Peter Jackson and The Witcher Crew got it, were very, very accurate. There are of course lots of places where people can quibble over choices they made
1: um or like the the interpretation they took did you collaborate extensively with peter because it seems like well the pictures themselves the illustrations themselves show a lot um and then you have to i think show the rest or write the rest write the rest of the description and the history behind the 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 picture of the item so
2: um, basically how the workflow went was I did up um, in with the, with the editor Paul Ver I would do up uh, art notes for Peter
1: okay
2: he'd do a sketch um, I'd then sort of go through the sketch and flag issue flag places where I hadn't mentioned something but that had to be right like you know I uh, I might take like, you know describe like you know, horses charge across the field hmm. and he put those in and then say oh hang on they have to have a banner with the white horse of Rohan on it okay Alright. And once the arc sort of nailed down, they went back and rewrote the text to make sure that the reader had all the information they wanted, they needed.
1: Okay. Alright. That makes that makes sense. Alright. Um I noticed that the book was missing a certain key female character. Um, namely Ewen. Um how did you choose which character not to include when working with such a large character base uh, like this?
2: Um <coughs> I don't think there was a conscious decision to exclude poor Ewan, because certainly her confrontation with um, The Witch King is one of my favourite sequences in the novels. Right. Um, I think it was basically we were were trying to sort of split the book evenly between good guys, bad guys and sort of neutral background material and poor Ewan just got sort of subsumed into the Writers of Rohan section.
1: I'm sure she's mentioned somewhere. Uh All right. Maybe, maybe I'll go through it again. See if, uh, if she's there. A...
2: If, if not, I'd like to extend my apologies to a poor, too poor Eon. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. Um. So, did you? So, speaking of the on, on this topic, did you feel tempted to include more about a certain subject, which because you had more personal connection to it, but had to limit yourself to that one or two paragraph? Or, uh... well, I mean, uh, um,
2: because the book is so art centric. I mean, the the, the the original brief was basically it's illustrated guide to, um, stories of Middle Earth.
1: Right.
2: The, all the plays, all the elements we took had to have some sort of strong visual, um, aspect to them. Okay. Uh, <clears throat> so, I, I started of, seeing, used to illustrate had to be something that could be done as a nice big, the uh, two page spread, or we could source uh, illustrations, of weapons or something. Um, I mean, there, there were sections that I would have loved to spend more time on, like the Paths of the Dead. But if there wasn't a, a immediate visual cue, <laughs> they had to be left aside.
1: Okay. Um, so, did you? Um, sorry, was this book uh, something that you've always wanted to write, uh, or did a certain experience with Middle Earth give you the purpose to write the book? Or how? How did what? What, what was the intention originally?
2: The actual pointers were dropped into my lap. Um, the um, publisher's cartoon books approached a friend of mine, James Wallace, okay. asked if he'd be interested in writing A Guide to Tolkien, and he said, I don't remember I don't for that, but I know mm-hmm. a man who does. <laughs> um, so he <coughs> got me involved. Um, but you know, I, I'm always min- 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 eager to talk to talk about uh, Tolkien and his work, so it was uh, nice to sort of be able to sort of summarise and give people another way into Middle Earth.
1: So in an age populated with wikis on every notable universe or franchise, did you feel worried about the sales of a book that includes information that is most likely online and free of charge? Firstly, there's for a book like this, certainly
2: there's still a certain niceness to having the physical artifact. Right, right. Could we... Um, well, the book, like I've seen, like I was for so the initial drafts of the book on PDF, and it does look lovely on iPad, but it's a nice <coughs> big uh, hard like book, and it's just nice to have those pictures right there in front of you. Um, plus, I mean, <coughs> there are also wikis on um Earth material, and there's some very, very good ones out there,
1: mm-hmm.
2: but they'll be doing like individual uh, articles on like your fairly, uh, on e- e- each. Picture like you're heading your item or name or whatever. Mm
1: -hmm.
2: Whereas this, I I was able to have some sort of through flow of narrative. Well, not narrative per se, but because I was writing the whole thing, I was able to to try and make it sort of internally consistent and as comprehensive as one can get in only a few thousand words.
1: Okay, I see.
2: So no, I, I wasn't that concerned, but it's meant as a guide and not a reference material, if you sort of see the distinction. What were some of the hurdles
1: that you didn't see coming when you began writing this book?
2: The movies are these days the immediate visual influence on most people's conception of Middle-earth because most people have seen the movies. Right. Uh, And they got certain scenes um, very, very uh, accurately. And we're trying to illustrate the same scene it was very, very hard to come up with a take on it that was, was A, true to the books, but wasn't a sort of like, you know, direct copy of a scene from the movies.
1: I see. Okay.
2: Um, so you had to either sort of dig deeper into the text or the background of the text try and find an, inter- an alternative uh, interpretation or come up with an idea for a like viewpoint or whatever or a scene that wasn't Depicted in the movies, hmm. and it was, it was a challenge to, to think so visually. Because so, I mean, <clears throat> with most of writing, I think you know, write, write it up and hand over to hand over like a you know, brief art notes. Whereas this, the art often led the text more than the text leading in the art.
1: Okay, I see. All right. Um, okay, so I have a speed round. Essentially, I'm going to ask you a series of questions with two choices. If you choose to answer, you have to pick one of the two choices. Ideally, one respond with the first thing that comes to their mind. Are you ready? Okay. All right. Mary or Pippin? Pippin. Ar- Aragorn or Thorin? Aragorn. Eowyn or Arwen? Eowyn. Uh, Denethor or Isildur? Ooh, Isildur. Smog or Balrog? Smog. <laughs> Saruman or Gollum? Saruman. Okay. And uh, finally, Gandalf or Bilbo? Gandalf. All right. Thank you. Uh, I, I have. That's that's it for me. Do you Spot have any? <laughs> Sorry. I feel like I've been psychoanalysed. And <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that that's essentially the the point. Um, do you have anything else uh, that you'd like to talk about? Um. No, I, I don't think so. Okay. <clears throat> if
2: Anyone wants to check me out? it's it a Mytholder on Twitter? Okay. Um writing away on various topics and soon to be juggling two twins. Oh, writing?
1: All right. Oh, rats. Uh, thank you. Uh, Gareth Hanrahan. Uh, the book again is tokens world, a guide to the people and places of middle earth. Thanks Gareth for your time. Take
2: care.
0: That was OSU student Chirag Massacar talking to fantasy author, Gareth Ryder Hanrahan, about hanrahan's book tolkien's world a guide to the peoples and places of middle earth more information about the book can be found on our website at www.writerstalk.org and now we'll switch to a somewhat more modern take on media in our interview with linford detweiler from cincinnati's own over the rhine who will be in town on december 14th for a concert Over the Rhine is a great Ohio band and they join us for the second time today on Riders Talk. They'll be in Columbus at the Lincoln Theater at 8pm on Friday, December 14th for their, I think, semi-annual show. Tickets are available at Kappa. We're joined today by keyboardist and songwriter Linford Detweiler. Welcome. Thanks for having me. I think this is your second year in a row for a Christmas show and uh, tell us what we can expect at this year's show.
3: Well, uh, we're bringing a, a wonderful quartet uh, with us, so four musicians total. Um, an amazing upright bass player named uh, Byron House, who uh, tours with a lot of people. He's part of uh, Robert Plant's Band of Joy with Buddy Miller and Patty Griffin right now, and and he's played on a number of our records. Um, and then we're bringing a multi-instrumentalist from Cincinnati named Nicholas Rodina, and he plays percussion and a Puerto Rican instrument, uh, the cuatro, and nylon string acoustic guitar, electric guitar, and so forth. So there's a lot of good colors and textures on stage. And, um, you know, Karen and I have recorded uh, two Christmas records. Um, the first was called The Darkest Night of the Year, and our most recent was called Snow Angels, and we're working on a third that we hope to have out at the end of 2013, and that record's going to be called uh, Blood Oranges in the Snow. So we have quite a bit of original uh, Christmas music and songs that we've written over the last two decades, and um, we'll be trying some of the new stuff out on our audiences this this December and, you know, dipping back into... Uh, a couple of other Christmas and holiday releases, as well as uh, our catalog.
0: What are the must-play songs that you'll be bringing this time? That you think any time that you play around the holidays, or better yet, in Columbus, <laughs> you're going to be bringing out?
3: That's a good question. I, I hope we're not one of those bands that that has to play a particular song for people to uh, you know not demand a refund at the end of the night. <laughs> but um, I think our our fans do embrace. Um, you know, our records sort of as complete statements and don't get hung up on um, just one or two songs. But um, that being said, there are a couple of, um, you know, over the Rhine" Christmas classics <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> that I think people do sort of expect to hear. Um, one of those songs, All I Ever Get for Christmas is Blue, uh, just showed up on a list in the L.A. Times recently of... Um, Saddest Christmas songs ever, question mark. <laughs> and John Prine and Merle Haggard uh, and some other great songwriters had songs listed in that list. And um, I didn't even think it was our saddest Christmas song, but um, it is one that a lot of people uh, do ask for. So we, we usually uh, tuck that one in for sure.
0: What, what was there that attracted you to write something like this the sad Christmas songs. What's the background behind those?
3: Well, Karen says that we're trying to in- invent a new genre of, of music called uh, reality Christmas music. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> and Karen, of course, is my partner in crime and, and uh, my co-writer and singer in the band. Um, but, you know, I think Christmas is uh, um, a beautiful... Uh, but often conflicted time of year for many and um, you know it's just a bittersweet time of year or, or a downright heartbreaking time of year for for many of us um, you know there are people who have uh, spouses in the military so there's an empty empty chair at the table um, you know families, don't always stay together so things get complicated um you know I think there's a lot of pressure on people to sort of you know get on board with our consumer culture and and there's a lot of pressure there um to sort of you know fit in and and uh um I lost my father for almost almost five years ago now and um you know it's just uh, yeah, those empty seats at the table or just you know family stuff. Karen says when it comes to you know going home for these big holidays, she says, uh, tie a rope around my waist, I'm going in <laughs> <laughs> you know, and uh, I think we just wanted to acknowledge um, you know the fact that it's it's uh, it's a beautiful time of year. I think for me, what I love about Christmas is it does take me back to um, so many strong early childhood memories, you know. And my first experiences on stage, actually, in front of an audience, were as a child at Christmas time and these little Christmas pageants, you know, that small towns would put on. Right. And every self-respecting kid in the 70s would get out their flannel bathrobe and <laughs> take the belt off and use it for a headband so that they could, you know, stand there like an authentic Middle Eastern shepherd. And, um, you know, we would sing this music that was music that was only uh played at a certain time of year, and it felt like something a little sacred and, and magical was happening and you know, we lose that uh that um sense of possibility that we had as children, I think, as we get older, and so there's sort of a longing to get back to that place where um, you know, magical magical stuff could happen.
0: You're listening to Writers Talk from the Center for the Study and Teaching of Writing at The Ohio State University with my guest, Linford Detweiler from Cincinnati's own Over the Rhine. Over the Rhine will be in town on December 14th for a concert, so check out www.writerstalk.org for more information. And now, back to our discussion. I'd like to switch a little bit from the Christmas stuff to just asking you about your own stuff. Your most recent album, I think, is The Long Surrender. Mm -hmm. Uh, What's new in the pipeline? Are there new things coming out? You said you were writing a Christmas song for next year. I'm sorry, a Christmas album for 2013. Is there also, we hope, a new album of original material from Over the Rhine? Uh,
3: Yes, there is. Um, Karen and I moved outside of Cincinnati about seven years ago and bought an old uh, pre-Civil War farmhouse, a brick house that was built in the 1830s out here in Highland County, sort of in the rolling fields, uh, one of the first houses built in this area. Surrounded by a few tall trees that the uh, pioneers planted (laughs) and um, a lot of wide-open country, and it's kind of our refuge from the road. You know, we were taken by a lot of American artists and writers that sort of found a specific piece of earth to call home. Um, you know, you think of people like Robert Frost or Thoreau or even Wendell Berry or Georgia O'Keeffe, and you sort of think immediately of a specific place um, that's associated with their writing. And for us, you know, we, we chose to stay rooted here in Ohio. And um, this farm has... Uh, become our place where we uh you know regroup and and get our work done and um a song cycle began to revolve loosely around this place um and uh we want to collect some of those songs now onto uh, a new record that we're just tentatively uh calling the farm so uh hopefully in 2013 you'll see uh two releases from Over the Rhine, um, The Farm, and then Blood Oranges in the Snow. What
0: songs do you play when you can't sleep, yours or somebody else's? You're out in the farm, and <laughs> uh, it's quiet, you can't sleep, you're wandering around, you sit down at your piano. What comes out?
3: Well, if, uh, if Karen and I aren't rehearsing, um, which I do love the sound of, you know, people singing together and playing instruments in, in a home, so um, I don't know what the pioneers were doing when they first moved here, but uh, there's a lot of music in the house now.
1: Um, but,
3: you know, that's that's work. Our own music is our, our life's work. Um, so I don't particularly think of, of relaxing when I'm working because we're always uh, being a little bit analytical of what we're doing and, and um, you know, making sure things are sounding the way we want them to sound so i would always go to somebody else's music that would allow me to you know just take a deep breath and disengage and and receive something so uh yeah if i sit down at the piano um i mean that being said if i'm playing um i often will just improvise and let let things just start coming out um Funny thing is, I don't think of that as my own music. Really, I'm just, I'm just letting things happen in
0: front of me. Now, my last question is uh, sort of a personal indulgence here. One of my favorite songs of yours features you in lead vocals. It's called "Don't Wait for Tom." I've always wondered about the lyrics in the song if there is a particular person that you had in mind when you wrote it you don't have to say who it is but I was wondering if you could talk just a little bit about that song
3: excellent well I can't uh, I I won't uh, try to be fancy I'll just come out with it Um, most of that song spilled out uh, the morning after we had seen Tom Waits perform Mm -hmm. uh, for the second time and we're huge fans and uh we had just seen another amazing uh, performance where he sort of embodies disappearing America you know the street preacher and the vagabond and and, uh, the circus performer and all that and uh, I don't know we were just kind of basking in the afterglow and these words started spilling out and um, we just kind of collected them into a a little bit of a rant and a rave, and Karen grabbed a cookie sheet and started hitting it, and uh, I sat down at an old upright piano that had tacks on the hammers and started kind of banging this thing out, and uh, it's a little bit of a stomp, and it's our tribute to uh, one of America's great songwriters, Tom Waits.
0: Yeah, it sounds like a great way for a cookie sheet to maybe meet its end in the production of a song.
3: (laughs) She did uh, destroy a few, I must
0: admit. <laughs> All right. Well, Linford Detweiler, I thank you very much for talking to us today uh, on Writer's Talk. And we look forward to you being in town on Friday, December 14th with Over the Rhine and Karen Berquist. So thank you very much. Yeah,
3: thank you. And I should mention that we have a great opening act that night, a uh, singer-songwriter named Ben Sollee. A uh, great cello- cellist who's uh, toured with Baylor Luck and many others, um, and he's got his own um, songs that he'll be offering as well.
0: Oh, that's excellent! Thanks for letting me know about that. You bet. Have a great day.
3: Okay, nice talking to you. Hey Tom, the sun's coming up. You got your wipers on. Are you trying to make it right? You're trying to make it rain again. Is it raining just around your Are you to make it rain again? It's just
0: You've been listening to Writers Talk from the Center for the Study and Teaching of Writing at The Ohio State University. For more from Writers Talk, visit www.writerstalk.org. Join us next time for a Thurber House show with Kati Martin discussing her memoir, Paris, A Love Story, and Chris Cleave discussing his latest novel, Gold. Until then, check out www.writerstalk.org for more information about our shows, about how you can friend us on Facebook at facebook.com slash writerstalk, and about upcoming writing events, such as the new slate of authors from Thurber House. Until next time, this is Doug Dangler. Keep writing.